Thank you for listening to Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan King. Welcome back, returning listeners. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Radio Never Apart is an interview feature started at the beginning of 2020, which launches monthly as part of the Never Apart online magazine and has featured some incredible people in various aspects of nightlife and nightlife culture across North America. This has included performers, DJs, drag performers, promoters, and so many more. In this episode, I speak with Corey Grant Tippin. Corey has run in some pretty incredible circles in his life, beginning with Andy Warhol's Factory Crowd, later Fashion Visionaries, Antonio Lopez and Juan Ramos in Paris, and as a makeup artist, he helped craft the looks for iconic 70s models Donna Jordan and Jane Forth. Tune in as we talk about Corey's life, and he shares what it was like arriving in New York City in the 1960s. So let's start at the beginning. I'm here talking with Corey Grant Tippin for Radio Never Apart. I'm so excited about this. Thank you for inviting me, and hello to all the listeners out there. You know, I get really excited about talking to virtually every single one of my guests, but you are really particularly on my wish list for probably a few years. Um, we first started interacting on Instagram when I was first living in New York, and you're very active on Instagram, and I I love that. I have to say it's so wonderful to see how um, you're just incredibly generous with sharing memories on you know other people's photos and on your own feed and stuff like that um it's so inspiring thank you um i love instagram because it gets gives me a chance to recreate my life probably as i wish it had been rather than the actual way it was you know mm. you have this ability on instagram to put forth a personality um i try to be as honest as possible the interesting thing about all this public knowledge is that I get so frustrated because a lot of it gets misdocumented. Yeah. You know, the names and the dates and the people involved in photographs. I love it when a photograph is credited, mm-hmm. dated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the content is, is um, you know, identifiable. And often the internet gets that wrong and which is yeah. terrible because it lives on yeah you know this is how history gets kaflummixed absolutely you know, i constantly there's one one or two photographs that continuously get posted that are completely misidentified and i jump in there and i i try to correct without being like the bossy school teacher but <laughs> while i'm alive i'm going to make it my duty to keep history as accurate as possible. Well, that's why I'm so excited to be speaking with you. I mean, you you have been right front and center at with some incredible scenes, some like just unbelievable moments in in art and in fashion history like for my generation who looks looks up to and looks at those times and you know I think I speak for a lot of people when it's we I just think my gosh it was such an incredible time it was so amazing there was so much happening and 
Grace Jones and the emergence of disco in New York in the 70s and Andy Warhol in the Chelsea Hotel and Max's Kansas, like all these places. And so I, I have a sense that you were around during some of these scenes. So to be speaking with you and to be documenting it um, directly from you is, I mean, it's just such an honor. Well, thank you, Jordan. You know, I see myself, you know, somebody had to be there. Like yeah. somebody, you know, besides the main players, mm-hmm. there had to be an audience of sort of like behind the scenes unknowns that were part of the, were part of the posse. Mm-hmm. And so I consider myself uh, a witness. Mm-hmm. In other words, like I, even if I might've been in a blackout half my life, <laughs> there's some strange reason that I have a very, very clear, acute memory of how things went down. Yeah, And, you know, over time, as I get more information from the few others that survived all those decades, mm-hmm. it's very um, it's very affirming because I'll hear the story that I remember. I'll hear it from someone else, and I'll think, "Oh my God, I was right. I didn't mm. invent that." Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually there's um, more evidence of of, um, of backup. So I try to be as as honest and clear. Uh, as possible, I, I don't know something. I don't, I'm not going to embellish it. Sure. And I think in particular to people, I've, I've seen a few people of, you know, generations who, let's say, were really involved in nightlife in New York in the 80s and 90s, who will be quick to point out that there's just no way that the number of people who love to sort of write about it and talk about it were necessarily in all of those places or were really as involved as they like, let's say they say that they were, I mean, there's a few, there's a few books and there's a few examples of, of, you know, maybe people who really got it right. But for the most part, there's not necessarily a lot of people who were, who were so front and center, but I, I mean, I happen to know that, that you were, and, and I think, well, I think it's good to start by going back to sort of the very beginning. And if you want to tell people listening a little bit about yourself and your arrival in, in New York. Sure. So let me give my age. I guess I might put it in context. I'm <laughs> 71. I was born the last few days of the decade of the 40s, 1949. Wow. And um, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. I was a very rebellious queer kid, mm. you know, inventing my own culture in my mind, a loner. There was, um, this is taking us back to a time when, um, Absolutely, social media was was unthinkable. Yeah, it, it it just wasn't even wasn't even possible to imagine something like that. So there was not a lot of collective information if you were a, a gay kid. You mm. eventually found out things through your own experience, and you learned to adapt through the willingness of what it took to survive. Um, so I was always. Um, Sort of living in my my own own sort of world, you know, as mm. many many gay kids kids were. I mean, you didn't even think that gay was, you know, everybody that I that I remember from my from my generation, they weren't exposed. To, there wasn't really an out gay culture, mm-hmm. so you basically felt that you possess the strange quality that was unique to yourself. And over time, mm. you know, as you became a, an adolescent and a teenager, you understood, 
oh, there's other people that feel this way. Mm. Then I realized, I learned what a lesbian was. I was like, oh my God, you mean women are that way too? <laughs> I mean, these sort of groundbreaking, you know, private realizations yeah. that you incorporated. So I grew up in a time where, where every, there was not a lot of information. The one thing I knew is that queer folk went to New York. Mm. And my goal at a very young age was just to somehow get to New York City any way I could. So I grew up in a beautiful town outside of New York in Connecticut. Mm. And um, I just started um, gravitating towards New York. You know, anytime I could get there, any by any means, if I, if I could take a train and just step off the train and put my foot on New York soil for an hour and then mm. take the train home, I would do that mm-hmm. because I was obsessed, mm-hmm. obsessed uh, to get there. Mm. So that's sort of a little bit of my queer history. Um, as I got older and became more rebellious, um, I, I had a very, very understanding and generous mother who eventually got, uh, I was a child of divorce and I rebelled mm. and when my mother got custody of me, she had become a successful businesswoman and I was put into a private school for my junior and senior year of high school. Mm. And that's when I really sort of blossomed into, you know, an out gay person. She had mm. always had gay friends, you know, she was very naive about them, but cast no judgment on me. Hmm. Hmm. You know, maybe I was even used as a pawn to get revenge on my father, who hmm. was a Kansas, you know, farmer that came as a to East as an educator. He didn't wouldn't have known what to do with me. Hmm. You know, there were no guidelines for if you were a parent of a gay kid. But my mother was extraordinarily ahead of her time. Wow. And very uh, very supportive. So um Kent I was in this private school, and a, and a bus went by every every weekend. A Greyhound bus went right by the school, which I could jump on, and I could go to New York for the weekend. Mm. So I had, on a lark, I had audition, auditioned for a nightclub go-go dancer position. And um, I my art teacher dared me we were in it was in the afternoon it was on broadway and it was owned by a famous lesbian club owner named trudy heller she had had a bunch of clubs in new york city in the 60s if anybody listening to this is my age they may remember incredible lesbian broad and i went in in the afternoon and i auditioned and she hired me to be a, a go-go dancer at this new club on Broadway and it was called The Trick. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that was gay uh, slang for, you know, trade, I guess. Yeah. So you turn a trick or something. Yeah. So um, I had to buy this little costume, which was Bonnie and Clyde inspired. It was black and white, checkered houndstooth, houndstooth pants, bell bottoms, a white shirt, a big black wide tie, and I would buy Capizio men's dance shoes. And my job was to dance for uh, half an hour segments. You know, old. You know, some people may have seen this in movies and stuff where they had the 
go-go dancers out on the floor to kind of inspire the crowd to get with it, you know, to do the dances that were popular then. But you had a little tiny block just to get up on, and then you danced among the crowd in this in this um, Bonnie and Clyde kind of outfit. It was kind of a 60s thing, right? Like it was, you know, you'd have like these podium dancers and and I've seen it, you know, yeah, some of this archival footage or I guess in some films maybe where you'd have, you know, yeah, different people or different, you know, kids or whatever up on the podiums to add that kind of energy to the space. I mean, it's so amazing. Exactly. Now, there were TV shows that had started up. Uh, Hullabaloo was one and... um the other one was, oh, my God, I'm blanking. I'm sorry. But anyway, they would feature um, live acts on their show. They were beautifully done, actually, hmm. really fantastically photographed. And there were famous go-go dancers hmm. that you would see on television. So it, it was probably that was national. So people were getting a feel, even if you lived in the middle of nowhere, and you had a television, you might get a sense that this was happening. Hmm. You know, not near you, but but somewhere. You know, prior to that, there were well, there was another big club. You know, I'm underage, so uh, I had to go to clubs that didn't serve booze. But hmm. they had great, which I love. They had a tea dance or afternoon dancing. You yeah. know, for people underage or whoever, whomever. And uh, there was a club called the Cheetah. C-H-E-E-T-A-A-H. And that was a big open-air dance club with a stage that attracted all kinds of diverse culture. You know, having grown up in Connecticut, like, I didn't know that many diverse kind of people. Certainly, I didn't know any, you know, Latina, Latino people. I didn't know any Black people. But when I got to the clubs, Hmm. there were these fabulous boys and girls you know, like dancing. Mm-hmm. And um, it just sort of, um, it led me and I followed. So that's kind of how I learned to do these ridiculous dances of the time that are parodied often. Like you'll see those people, like girls, like do the swim where they hold their nose and like get down <laughs> um, or the jerk or the duck or the holy golly or... Um, the uh, walk the dog, yes. the shingling. I mean, these were all, you know, they were dancers. Yeah. Um, in those days also, in the very, very few gay clubs that were emerging, that were against the law in New York City, touch dancing, if you were gay, uh, you could not dance with a same-sex person mm-hmm. if you touched them. Hmm. But there were dances like the Madison, the Holly Golly, where there were line dances, I suppose it evolved into the kind of like wedding dance. Mm. I don't go to a lot of weddings, but I've seen, you know, sure. like those big group dances where people get in a line, but they don't touch. Yeah. Like that. So if the cops came and raided the club, you weren't touch dancing with the same sex person. So huh. there was a lot of sort of singular dancing like that. Wow. Yeah. As I got into the, um, the club scene then, this would probably be in like about 1966. Okay. I, uh, uh, the clubs were run by the mafia. Uh, they probably still are. And um, I had to get 
what was called in order to dance and get paid for it, I had to get something called a cabaret card. Mm. That was sort of like for a for a semi performer kind of thing. I had to go downtown in Manhattan and um sit in an office and apply for a cabaret card. So I'm sitting down in this office and I got rejected because I was I wasn't of age. I think you had to be eighteen. But when I was in the office I met this really cool girl. Uh, her name was Devin Wilson, and she was Jimi Hendrix's wife. Wow. And, yeah, and we became friends because we met in the daytime down there in the New York office. But then she said, oh, come here. Come there. Let's, you know, here's where I like to go, blah, blah, blah. I'll see you out. So she gave me a hint as to what the other clubs were at that time. And there was a... Prior to disco, they were called discotheques, mm. and they were small, you know, more intimate kind of dancing, drinking clubs. A lot of them had live music, which I was never that fond of. Hmm. But then there were a few DJs spinning music. Hmm. And before I forget, I know this is a long diatribe no not at all i'm it's so fascinating to imagine nightlife at that period because i know that nightlife too like when it was crossing over from live music into recorded music and djs playing vinyl that was like a big shift in terms of the whole feel of the the spaces and the nights out because it wasn't so much focused on a stage show right exactly there was a club called arthur and it was very kind of like elite in a way Hmm. Like I saw Sonny and Cher there. I saw Judy Garland because she was dating her last husband, Mickey Deans, hmm. bought Arthur from Sybil Burton. Sybil Burton was Richard Burton's wife before Richard Burton got involved in this tale. She was an, a big English lady and she drew a fabulous crowd uh, to Arthur. And um, somehow I got in uh, to Arthur and a lot of movie stars would go um, sort of like it was a little bit more elite. It was table service and live music. And Judy uh, would go there often late at night because she was married to Mickey Deans who had bought the club. Hmm. And I remember being on the dance floor, dancing to live music, and Judy was out on the floor in her little sequined Nehru outfit. She was tiny. Hmm. And she was riffing with the band on a on a microphone, like a handheld mic, or either or it might have had a cord. I don't know. She was swamped because she was tiny, and she was in the middle of all these these couples like dancing around her. And it was time to close. And I think they pulled the mic on her, <laughs> but I could hear her. She was like standing right next to me, sort of like wailing, you know, riffing with the band into the. Um, into her mic. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And when you say elite, like, so describe some of these places. Was it elite in the sense that it was like expensive to go there or that you couldn't really get exactly. in? Yeah. yeah, it wasn't a slumming kind of place. It was like a place that um, if you were a movie star or like an uptown kind of person, or, yeah, and it was probably expensive. Mm. Um, my best friend was became a waiter there, mm. and um, they made really good, really good tips. So it was sort of an established um, sort 
highbrow kind of place as hmm. opposed to the more low down underground kind of places that huh. were happening. There was another bar which I loved to go to, and it was in the East Village, way down on Third Street in, in what they called Alphabet City, and it was called the Old Reliable Tavern. Hmm. And it was run by these old Hungarian or Czechoslovakian people. But what had happened is the front of the bar was sort of heterosexual and it was mixed. And in the back, they had dancing. Hmm. Now, it's probably illegal, but they did. And you could, like, dance. You know, it was interracial. Hmm. So even in that that time, I'm, probably this is about 1966, it was considered a little dangerous and a little mm. risky sure. um the idea of having an interracial club in those years that was in the height of the um you know the sort of racial the first big racial equality movement mm -hmm. the riots across the united states and it was very um considered very sort of liberal and sort of um sort of outre mm -hmm. you know to to But of course, the people that lived in New York, that's what they were. They were embracing that. There were no boundaries. Um, it all also had a gay vibe, which was really interesting uh, for the first time that I can remember really seeing an integration of gays, straight, and whatever, mm -hmm. sort of intermingle, intermingling. Hmm. And were you living in New York at this point, or were you still going back and forth to Connecticut yeah. a little bit? Yes, I had graduated from that school uh, that I was talking about, the private school. And that afternoon, I had already gotten an apartment on St. Mark's Place in Manhattan. And that fall, I was to attend Parsons School of Design. I had been accepted at Parsons. So I had the summer in New York. And believe me, I wasn't doing anything but getting acquainted with, you know, my newfound freedom and nightlife. Oh, and, um, you know, I was uh, exploring all these things that, you know, I had waited for. At this point, I believe I was 17 years old. Yeah. And this is just prior um, to Stonewall, right? Like this is, you know, 1967, 1968. It's just prior to Stonewall. So it's kind of on like the yes. cusp of a big, you know, shift in the Like, you know, at the time it was called the gay rights movement stuff, right? It's sort of the queer liberation movement, we might say now, that kind of thing. But this is just before that point, exactly. right? Now, Stonewall, I remember well. Now, that was trickier to get into. They hmm. may have been a little bit more discretionary about carding people or getting in. Now, I believe then the um, 18 was the age of you know, freedom or whatever, you'd be able to drink at 18 yeah. back then. And I was 17, so I couldn't get in. But I remember often, like, standing outside uh, the Stonewall in that little park. And there yeah. was a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot going on <laughs> outside as well. But I have to be honest, Jordan, and the, the Stonewall was a real exclusively gay kind of, of establishment. Mm. And I probably had a lot of fear mm. about being in an exclusively gay environment. I, I loved girls. I loved women. I was obsessed with like fashion models and beauty 
And I love to be in an, in an environment that was a little bit more diverse. Yeah. So what happened was um, there was, there was, I'm sure you've heard of this place called Max's Kansas City. Of course, yeah. Um, Max's Kansas City was a restaurant that had opened in the mid-60s that, that uh, had a very sort of heavy artistic clientele. When I say artistic, it was the real artists, hetero artists of the 60s movement, moving into like the, from the conceptual to the pop. Uh, and up in the front of the, of the restaurant was a big bar and with, a, with a jukebox. There was no dancing allowed mm. and booths. And then there was the famous back room Mm-hmm. that started to collect the wannabes and the Warhol crowd. Andy had moved the factory from the Silver Factory, which was on 43rd Street, I believe, uptown. The building was going to be demolished. So he moved to Union Square, mm-hmm. which was right in the area. So he started coming there and sitting at a big round table in the back. So there was a lot of different planets to orbit around. Mm-hmm. Um and then upstairs, there was a big sort of open room. And um, this is in 1967. Prior to the Maxes that many people may remember as a punk and rock and roll club, mm. prior to that, it was a disco. And my friend Chris Cross, who was a, this great friend of mine, this kid, was hired to be the DJ. And we went to the Lower East Side and got all the greatest, most incredible what we called soul and R&B music. And it was a disco that really was um, really focused on, you know, R&B and dance music. Mm -hmm. And uh, it started to attract, um, you know, a crowd um, separate from the, the already established Max's crowd downstairs and uh, it was like my home away from home. I was there all the time. Huh, that's so, uh, that's so cool. I, I sort of knew about it as the, re- like as the restaurant, maybe the, you know, what you've, I don't know, like I've seen it in films or I've read about it and that there was, you know, the, the dining area portion and then there was the back room and the Andy Warhol crowd hanging out and stuff like that. But, and then I knew that later on there was a live music element to it and there was kind of a punk scene, but I have to admit, I didn't know that there was an incarnation which was the upstairs part of it you're saying that that was where like there was DJ music and more dancing and stuff was happening. Yes, that is true. Cool. Not many people know that. Huh. Um, when you sat downstairs in the back room, the, you know, the, the back dining room where the, you know, the Andy and company would be seated. If you looked up, you could actually see the floor, like, buck, like bouncing. <laughs> at times you know you could really see you know people were really getting down yeah i'm sure it was super unsafe but um luckily the floor never caved in and they put my friend who later became my friend um a um a warhol person an extraordinary woman named dorothy dean a very educated tiny petite little black woman who always reminded me of the politician Shirley Chisholm. And she was very bitter and very, very harsh and very, very intelligent. And she she was the door woman for the upstairs. So hmm. she could discriminate over who 
came upstairs and who didn't. Hmm. And uh, a lot of uh, the fashion people from that era, there was, a, I don't know if you're, you're probably your, your listeners know who Stephen Burroughs was. He was a fabulous black designer that really sort of established his, his, uh, his look uh, with the Latina, black, diverse community. And he had a fabulous entourage of guys and he would come with all his boys decked out and they would dance and then there would be beautiful models the first time i met candy darling it was upstairs mm. the europeans would come when they were in town so it was sort of in a way a precursor to the idea of inclusiveness mm. where everybody was sort of welcome sort of the idea of what evolved into well, let's say studio 54 only this was just a microcosm you've got to mm-hmm. remember everything was word of mouth there yeah. was no instagram there was no social media there was only telephones and word of mouth as yeah. to what was what was happening in the city hmm and what was? Um, shall I go on? Yeah, I'm curious what your recollections are of the sort of Warhol crowd. Then, um, I mean, I, I know I know a fair bit about you know the sort of evolution of Andy Warhol and what sort of work he was doing at different points in time and from the '60s to the '70s into the '80s. And I mean, I don't think we, you know, that's it's, I'm not so keen to talk about that per se. I'm much more interested in your story and everything you're sharing is so incredible. But I'm curious what your recollections are of of that sort of scene in that world um, as you saw it. Sure. I think that's a really important part because I have to say that Andy's influence, his influence was was extreme. You know, again, people had heard of Andy Warhol had heard of the factory and it brought people with courage to New York city. You know, Mm. there was not a lot of information, but if you had the courage to come to New York, you did it. And if you had the ability to survive, you survived there. And many people came with the intention of getting attention and being famous for being famous. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of the concept was, the, the, the naissance of the concept was born through Andy, that idea that still exists today. My God, does it exist today on social media where the ability to be famous for doing nothing was possible and could be obtained. You know, that's what mm-hmm. Andy represented to so many people. So there were lots of followers and mm-hmm. there was a pyramid kind of, uh, unspoken pyramid where Andy was at the top his superstars were at the top and then through popularity and through your ability to get closer to the factory and Andy himself in that world you would find your place in the pyramid hmm. so Andy was transitioning from the silver factory and filmmaking into this, uh, more uh, how can I say it? Um, changing the, you know, he, he spent a lot of time just making films. Okay. So yeah. this was the period where the film portion of his career was ascending and then descending. And he had a string of popular superstars 
that had already existed and had already been documented. And my generation sort of followed the first generation of big superstars. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of us wanting to be in film, but it was also the idea that Andy was being acknowledged for his his representation as a as a pop artist. He was having retrospectives already at the Whitney. Uh, he was uh, had a studio in the back of the, the the new factory where he was silk screening. He was just starting to do portraits. His business was expanding into that very thing into a business. You know, this hmm. didn't happen overnight. It was sort of a, a progressive sort of time, but that was kind of what was happening. And there was a shift. There was a shift from the old guard at the factory into the new younger generation. Hmm. He was a very important entity that created inspiration and aggressiveness for a lot of people, good and bad, believe me. Yeah, yeah. And did you, was it a scene that you wanted to be a part of, or do you feel like you were a, a part of it? What was what was that like? Yeah, um, of course I wanted to be a part of it. My big problem was that I thought I wanted the limelight, but then when I got the limelight, I couldn't deal with it. Mm. So um, drugs and alcohol, you know, became very, very much a part of my um my mode of operation hmm. um you know um i found like being lubricated not all the time but i was learning that the more complicated and more i got into this scene the more i needed a little bit of extra help to maintain my my what i thought was my personality mm-hmm. um so yeah um I, we, and my friends, my contemporaries, we all sort of had a group or a clique that became visible to Andy and Andy, you know, had a, had a great uh, partner who I would call him sort of like a public relations guy, Fred Hughes, that came from Texas Hmm. and Paul Morrissey, of course, that made the films with him. So we all became visible not only to Andy but to his his immediate counterparts so that we grew in visibility. Um I worked on Donna Jordan and Jane Forth who were my peers. Kids that I that came to me that we were all the same age and they were New Yorkers, high school dropouts, whatever. Hmm. And they were beauties and I groomed them and they both became superstars. Yeah, we kind of became more or less part of the factory scene. I always say, in order to be a superstar, you have to qualify by at least being in one movie, right? <laughs> one Andy Warhol. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> eventually, um, what brought me to Paris for the for the duration of time I spent there was we made a, a film in Paris with Andy called L'Amour, hmm. which we filmed in like, 1970. And huh. uh, I had groomed Donna and Jane. Jane became a real, uh, much more of a Warhol star because Donna and I had already gone to Paris to spend some time with our other friend, Antonio, who was a fabulous uh, fashion artist of the time, who also had extreme influence on the look of, of fashion with 
girls and models. So I don't know, it was, a, it was a great time to kind of like be seated amongst these these leaders, these, you know, what I, I call them influencers. Yeah. Certainly that, that word didn't exist then, but they were, they were huge influencers in culture. That's and that's such an apt way to put it. It's such a fascinating way to sort of imagine and and to sort of think about just how yeah, just the kind of role that these these people occupied. People like Andy Warhol and Antonio Lopez. Uh, I mean, two things. If I can interject for a second, I mean Donna Jordan. Oh my gosh! Like that, and talk about a face of the a face of that era of that the seventies. I mean, so stunning. Some of those images i mean they're just and i think that they're a little bit under the radar in some ways because they're maybe not everybody knows about some of those because it was for french folk a lot of it right that she was that she was shooting i feel yeah donna's yeah donna's career donna and i stayed in um in europe and jane who was donna's sort of counterpart Mm -hmm. i think people may be aware of donna jordan because I have to say the look was so strong that mm-hmm. it's reflected again and again and again. There's constantly references in fashion yeah. to Donna Jordan. Uh, Stephen Mizell did a, did a Valentino campaign, which was so accurate in the 90s mm. that literally Donna <laughs> forgot and thought it was her herself. <laughs> um, you know, there have been models like Lara Stone, or or Lily Sumner, yeah. who have been uh, even Linda Evangelista, and they've all done editorials with that that look of Donna Jordan, which of course is based on the quintessential movie American movie star. Yeah, bleached, bleached, bleached white hair, the uh, fabulous red lip, the blue eyeshadow, and the gap. There's a there's a Latin word, which I wish I had in my vocabulary, which aptly describes that fabulous gap between yeah. the two front teeth, yeah. which later was adopted by so many drag queens where they would, bl- <laughs> they would take black yes. uh, pencil and paint in the gap. Uh, Lauren Hutton had it famously. But um, those, that combination of, of qualities, those simple qualities, uh, also, the elimination of the eyebrow, yeah. which, uh, of course, is a staple in all drag makeup. You know, yep. uh, it was an old theatrical trick. Gosh, going back to who knows when the Commedia dell'arte, yeah. where men would erase their eyebrows in order to feminize the face, of course, and paint the eyebrows on higher, which shortens the the uh, distance between your eyebrows and forehead and gives you a lot more lid and eye area to work on. Thus, from a theatrical point of view, feminize, feminizes your face. Yeah. Um, it was also a very daring move because um, once you had no eyebrows, you had no eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, uh, you had to kind of... Uh, keep that look for a while and um both jane and donna had that very severe look donna's eyebrows i actually bleached yeah i was gonna uh, i was gonna say i feel like i remember hers being bleached and jane fourth were kind of the signature you know basically eliminated except for just the few in the very front closest to the center of her face but donna jordan's were bleached was what i thought so yeah we used um 
uh, back in the day, I didn't know how to do that. So I used uh, Joanne bleach, which was for uh, women or, or men that had, you know, hair on their face. And you could use it on your skin or on your upper lip or something. But I did it on her eyebrows. Full disclosure, Corey, I still use that to bleach out my own eyebrows. <laughs> oh, you do? Yes. All right, great. I'm that so trick, glad to hear that. that trick still exists because okay. you know what's good about it? It's you can get it almost anywhere. So in a pinch, like you'll find right. it at a drugstore somewhere, and it's a really weak bleach. So you're never going to really fry your skin because it's really quite sort of slow acting. So as long as you watch it, and I just lift mine a little bit. I don't bleach them to like white, but I just kind of lift them a bit to soften them a little bit. So that trick is still I going strong. <laughs> I love hearing that. This is a good segue too, because so we haven't necessarily talked about, touched on this yet, but I know you also were very active as a makeup artist during this time period. And so it sounds like, you know, I guess, would you introduce that to people listening, how that was all happening? Sure. Um, that happened by accident. You know, I had, um, I'd always loved makeup all my life, you know, like uh, circle back to when you're that, that ignorant teen, queer adolescent. And I just love the idea of makeup. You know, mm -hmm. I think the psychology of of makeup was just always so fascinating to me. And um, so I was always drawn to it. I loved wearing it, you know, um, and I loved, um, you know, uh, experimenting with it. And Donna and Jane were, were so um, agreeable, you know, mm -hmm. especially Jane when, when she shaved off her eyebrows and then she was... Um, Right after Twiggy, they were the only the only sort of uh, publication that got national was called Life Magazine. Hmm. This was back in the late sixties, early seventies. Everybody across the country got Life Magazine, and they did like a five or six page spread on Jane uh, with her eyebrows shaved and putting Western oil on her hair, hmm. and it was really God. It's a, I mean, I can only compare it to like a Kardashian moment in a mm, sense, mm -hmm. like it just went, they didn't have the word viral, but everybody sort of took notice of this, sure. this, uh, this chick. And of course she was just to style both Donna and Jane at the same time, because Jane had beautiful porcelain white skin. We dye her hair blue, black and Donna was very tawny, and, and had blonde hair and was very healthy. So they were kind of like Snow White and Rose Red. One was huh. very like the pop Warhol icon -y kind of look. And then Jane would have been the gothy, Morticia-ish kind mm -hmm. of look. So together they, they formed quite a striking contrast. And of course they were best friends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, together the impact they had was was extraordinary. And it led back to me because I was on the sidelines. You know, my boyfriend at the time was dressing them. Um, Jane was starting to make TV appearances on talk shows. And um, Donna was getting her career together in, um, in Europe, as you mentioned. Yeah, she did a striking Vogue cover, Italian Vogue, French Vogue. And she really took off in, uh, in Europe. Yeah, so that was kind of my my introduction to makeup, and my friend and I was just really doing nothing, basically being part of entourages. And my friend Antonio said, "Listen, call yourself a makeup man and do makeup." And I was like, <laughs> "Well, what do I do?" And he said, "Well, just do what you're already doing." You know, there were very few um, 
in those days, that was not a career. I mean, I suppose if you were in Hollywood, if you were one of sure. the, you know, um, you know, if you were Max Factor or you were Jack Don or those famous Westmore brothers that established themselves for film, you had a career. But basically on, on um, fashion shoots in the 60s and early 70s, there was a handful of professional makeup artists, but I have to hand it to the models themselves. And, and we talked about this briefly before, Jordan, where yeah. the idea of being uh, an individual uh, was an asset in those days to being a model because if women could put themselves together, if they knew how to do makeup, if they could do their own hair, if they had accessories, they would bring them to a shoot. You know, um, they carried wig boxes and, and were adept with, you know, falls and hair pieces. And just in the early 70s, did, did they step in with sittings, sittings editors hiring other professionals hmm. to assist with, with makeup and hair? Hmm. So I kind of came around at a really good time. Um, and I did get work, but I have to tell you, I didn't have the discipline. I didn't have the discipline to show up on time. <laughs> I really didn't care that much about fashion, yeah. you know, to hang around. It was tedious. And I wanted to be, as, let's, you know, again, circle back to the idea of wanting to be in the limelight myself, mm. but not being able to handle it. I wanted to be in the photographs. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be the star. Also. Absolutely. And you're already kind so, of in that you're in this, you know, you're sort of in the periphery. You're like hanging out with all the, all these people. So you're kind of seeing it all happen and stuff. I mean, I think it's only natural in a lot of ways that you sort of want to also be able to, to be in, in the photos and to be, yeah, kind of in the limelight yourself. Now you've talked a little bit about Antonio Lopez and I mean, we have to do a little momentary pause because if we were to talk about, let's say Antonio Lopez and Andy Warhol, as these really major figures in like 20th century, like art and culture. Um, I'm personally, I'm so much more excited about Antonio Lopez than Andy Warhol. And of course, I'm like just gobsmacked. I mean, I saw the show at the Museo del Barrio in New York in 2016. And I, I thought I knew a lot about Antonio Lopez until I saw that show. And then I was like doubly, triply, quadruply blown away um, and you mentioned him as your friend. So how did you meet Antonio Lopez? What, how did that, how did that happen? Well, I met Andy and Antonio probably within a month of one another. So I wow. first met Antonio at Parsons. He came in, I was, you know, remember I, I, um, got it, got it, uh, admitted to Parsons and that's why I had that apartment in New York. So I was attending Parsons and yeah. one day Antonio Lopez appeared he was always very, very, very generous with his peers and with youth. Hmm. And he and his partner, Juan Ramos, would often hold uh, seminars for students. They were very generous in sharing their talent. And they came to Parsons, and it was a huge event. And they sort of took over the day, and they, took, they had this huge, huge hall that they were set up in with a big podium, and they brought the model Kathy Damon, who to me was the ultimate, ultimate model of the time. She and Twiggy were around at the same time, but Kathy was the uh, American 
She was part Native American, and she mm. had invented this incredible look of the upper and lower lashes mm. that were very densely applied individually. And the beginning of the um, the curly perm hair. Now you have to think during this time, Vidal Sassoon really ruled the sixties with that very straight geometric mm -hmm. cut, which you would see everywhere. So the girls were ironing their hair. They were suffering. If you didn't have bone straight hair, kind of like today, mm. they were relaxing it. They were trying to get this extreme geometrical cut and it didn't mm. work for everybody. Definitely. And Kathy came along and did the exact opposite. Huh. And she went to a, an old timey hair salon in Queens and she got her hair permed. Wow. And it, it harkened back to the twenties and thirties, which was also a very, very, huge reference for um, the 60s and 70s, of course. You know, we had been watching movies from the 1930s diligently. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, that was basically our, our fashion reference. Dietrich, mm -hmm. Garbo, Harlow, all those beauties. Photographs by George Harrell, the perfect von Stromheim lighting. You know, uh, that, was our, that was our reference. And thus, Kathy brought forward this new look of this frizzy, curly hair. And she had a wig. She had this fabulous wig that was human hair and beautiful, beautiful curls. And I would suggest anybody that's listening, Google Kathy Damon, C-A-T-H-E-E-D-A-H-N-E-N, and you will see the full-on look that Kathy brought, which started a whole revolution and Antonio was sort of the mastermind of of Kathy. So he had brought her. He had brought her in the flesh to Parsons that day. And I was hanging in one of the doorways just ogling what was going on. We were all drawing Kathy. And he pointed me out and he, he motioned to me. He said, you. And he beckoned me with his finger and he said, come up here. And he brought me up on the podium with Kathy and we were posing, and I was like, okay, this is, this is where I want to be. <laughs> this is a life I've been, this is a moment I've been waiting for. Wow. And at that point, I had, um, I had also met Andy. I had crashed the factory, the silver factory, gone up on my own. My mother had seen an article in the paper that Andy was casting for a movie he was making called Romeo and Juliet. And in, uh, in the Village Voice, there was an ad, and it said, looking for a 17 to 21-year-old boy who has no interest in acting at all to star in an Andy Warhol film, call this number. So I, my mother had called the number, and I crashed the factory, and uh, I had met Andy. So the two of them I had met face-to-face, -face, and they knew me, and I was like, I'm not going to school anymore. I'm hanging out with these guys. This is your, my education. Your mom calls on your behalf and you show up by yourself to the silver. I mean, I'm like, the, the story but is in incredible. Days, yeah, in those days, you could get away with stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, the population of New York City itself was probably half yeah. what it is today, maybe yeah. even less. So the competition, you know, if you were aggressive like that, 
you could get to where you wanted to be. You know, people were vulnerable. Yeah. Um, they didn't have the protectiveness, of course, Andy later, because yeah. he was vulnerable. You know, there was a, a you know, attempt on his life yeah. by one of the kooks yeah. that, you know, was able to get access. Um, but in those days, you could you could have access, which was wonderful. Wow. Uh, to people. Yeah. So you were sort of running in both of those circles in tandem then, but between the Andy Warhol sort of world and the Antonio Lopez uh, world a little bit. That is correct. Yeah. Incredible. Which brought a lot of opportunity, believe me, a lot of opportunity. You know, in those days also, Jordan, I have to say, like, nobody was looking for money. I mm. mean, today it's all about the contract, the amount of money you're making. Mm -hmm. You know, that was not top of the list. Mm. I mean, attention... Fame, notoriety, yes. But money, no. That didn't really figure into the equation. Maybe for Andy, it mm. did because he really started to become a corporation before we understood what a corporation was. Mm. But otherwise, it was for the, the, you know, Antonio was drawing, he was lucky enough to, to make a great living out of it. But he was trying for the grace and the beauty and the the ability to to share his gift. Mm -hmm. That was that was the wonderful thing about Antonio and Juan. You know, their ambition was to produce fabulous work, yeah, and share it with the world and inspire people, which they certainly did. And Antonio Lopez, I mean, yeah, I just, I could go on and on. I'm I'm really so just blown away. I mean, there's not even really the right terminology. I just think the generativity of Antonio Lopez's creativity seems sort of limitless to somebody who's, you know, researched him a little bit and just the number of different things that like he himself or he and like, let's say his circle of people were we're doing and working on between photography and illustration and design. And he dabbled a little bit in makeup too, didn't he? Like, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, you know, I, I should say at this point, there is a documentary that came out maybe three or four years ago called Antonio 70, which I think is on, you know, Amazon or, or Netflix or something. It's it's called an Antonio Seventy, which is a documentary about a portion of his life from the sixties through the seventies. But Antonio continued to work and inspire until his death in the eighties. And you know, Jordan, they also keep reinventing with with uh, keeping him in context today uh, because critics are finding, as you said, just limitless expression that's relevant, mm -hmm. you know, that was sort of unexplored. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he just has had a huge body of work. You know, he just worked all the time, every day. I'm not unlike Andy, you know, they just put out an extreme amount of, of, um, of, um, of work. Yeah. Uh, so that, so that there's a, you can see the diversity, especially in Antonio. He never considered himself a fine artist. Hmm. Uh, what he would do was develop style and 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 use his talent behind certain means of familiar style to integrate into people's consciousness. Hmm. You know, like using um, uh, like the racial divide, or or using the idea of uh, 
different techniques to appeal to sensibility. You know, he was fluent in his hand and his 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 arm just just possessed this gift that it was just incredible mm. to see him express himself through his physicality. You know, he was able to just render these things that were in the imagination. You know, I always think about Antonio is that what he did is in our mind we knew these things existed already. In our in our subconscious we would see these images in our dreams, but we they were never realized until we saw Antonio's work. Mm-hmm. And it was almost a gasp of recognition because I would think to myself, yes, I understand that. I I know that drawing. I know those proportions. I I see those colors and that's what I'm feeling, but I would never be able to have expressed them without Antonio being there to do that for me. Hmm. You know, he also, Antonio's father was a psychic. Um, really? And his mother was also a very beautiful Latin woman who expressed herself uh, physically uh, through beauty. So Antonio possessed a certain sort of psychic ability. I think Andy did too, in an intellectually psychic ability certainly sure. to predict a future that, that has proved itself time and time again yeah. to have evolved from his his um, philosophy. True. Yeah, absolutely. That everybody will be famous for 15 minutes or essentially everybody's going to have a a shot at the limelight, at least if they're going to put themselves out there for it. I mean, he it's it is like he sort of predicted some of these so modern social media concepts. I mean, it's so fascinating. So fascinating. And to think of like a reality show, basically, Andy's movies from that period of the late 60s to the 70s, there was no script. Yeah. You know, there was no dialogue. You had to fight. If you were in one of those films, you know, and you were in there with a, a confident talker. Andy always said, it's not the beauties I really love, it's the talkers, because huh. you turn the camera on them and they won't shut up. <laughs> you know, to get a word in and invent, you know, keep the dialogue and the plot moving, you really had to like be strong and hold your own. You know when it really that's when that struck me was like I had seen the film The Queen oh my gosh so many years ago like rented on VHS and then and I knew that Andy Warhol had some role to play in it as like a producer or something or maybe he was like one of the financiers or something I'll tell you I'll tell you exactly what Andy did so uh, Sabrina was trying to find judges for that competition that was filmed and it was filmed at, at Town Hall in about 1966 because I had friends that were there I was still in school okay and um they, they had judges on a panel that had decided the, you know, who the final winners were, Kent, um, Rachel Harlow. But um, Andy was there that evening and was one of the judges yeah. on the panel. I know another judge was Mary Rivers, uh, another pop artist. I don't know who the other judges were. They're not shown. Right in the film itself, but when you can see the final part where um, where Crystal walks off and Harlow's uh, crown queen, there were you know with an sort of a theater and people were sitting in the theater and then there was a dais up in front where Andy and um, Larry Rivers were were seated 
to vote on the um, to vote on the winners. I just have to pause here and, yeah. and you know say what an influence that movie was. Yeah, I mean, the reason I brought up The Queen is because what fascinates me, you talk about the, these parallels between reality TV and the Andy Warhol sort of world, and you watch the movie The Queen, and it is almost the identical formula to RuPaul's Drag Race, and you can't help but think, that was in the 60s, and yet, fast forward, here we are, there's this like very contemporary show that's kind of following that exact same sort of script in a way, including the drama and the screaming and the... <laughs> So glad you brought that up. And, you know, there's so many references still to uh, the Queen, even Rue. I mean, absolutely, Rue's probably a good 15, 10 years younger than me, but has the knowledge of the history and knows that, you know, the references, especially when when, uh, Alaska brought up your makeup is terrible <laughs> you know we know where that came from of course that incredible crystal lavasia yeah and that infamous diatribe yeah um so I'm going to, oh my gosh, I mean, we could talk about that for, that's a whole separate interview maybe, but I'm, I'm curious to, to talk about Antonio Lopez and Andy Warhol and how, how those two sort of spheres overlapped or did they, or, and how did, how do you think that they saw each other? Well, interesting because, you know, they both started as commercial illustrators. Yeah. Andy, you know, for, came to New York in the fifties and was a commercial illustrator and was well known in the in with the uh, editorial uh, editors of Vogue Bazaar, um, the same as as Antonio, who was a decade and a half younger at least. Hmm. Uh, so they both sort of became they both sort of had that history uh, working on fashion editorials uh, through their talent as commercial. Let's say commercial illustrators, you know. Hmm. I, you only call it commercial because it's illustrating advertisements yeah. for a product. Yeah. But, you know, take the product away. It wouldn't matter. They're still like fabulous uh, illustrations. So, um, and then Andy um, was ambitious and clever and had the insight to kind of develop his talent from being commercial. A lot of the established artists of the time were not accepting Andy, A, because he was an out sissy, you know, mm. basically uh, unapologetically gay. Yeah. And uh, as was Antonio. Antonio and Juan were living as a couple through the early 60s, um, hmm. you know, without any sort of uh, hesitation of, you know, pretense or being in the closet. You know, I think for me, that was very inspiring because it, I never, ever felt that I had to be closeted, you know, maybe in elementary school or something, you know, but I was still playing jump rope with the girls, but I didn't feel the, the shame or the peer pressure. By the time I got to New York, you know, Andy was an out gay with, with you know, surrounded by gay. It was a great time in the 1950s for professional gay men that were in that business of advertising that, mm. that were illustrators or fabric designers or worked in the fashion industry, you know, they, they were talented guys that probably had a good semi, you know, you know, established education. Let's say they're probably primarily white. 
but they made a good living and mm. lived as bachelors in New York City and had their own private sort of um, club of professional uh, gays. And there was a whole culture going on in the city, too. I mean, there's a fabulous book. And I, I always tell everybody that is interested in this history to to read this book because it is, I mean, you talk about a book that's like exhaustively researched. It's called Gay New York. The author's name is, last name is Chauncey, I think. And and it's I, it covers a lot of queer history. It's not necessarily just the history of gay men. I mean, it includes, you know, trans women and it talks about all different kinds of, you know, social economic and there's some lesbian history woven into it as well. And it is, it's just like, I mean, it's incredible, that book. I think I know the book you're talking about. Is it almost like an encyclopedia that gives you uh, locations of where clubs or meeting places would have, would have been yes. through from the, from the turn of the century on up to the, it, yeah, it goes up to the eighties or the seventies. I want to say like, it's really a pretty set time frame essentially from, you know, where there's documentation of New York history of like 1890s yeah. up to the 1970s. Yes, exactly. Okay. This book, Incredible. I enjoy this book. I've had yeah. my hands on it a few times. And then it's escaped me, but I would love to get my hands on it again. Later, when yes. we're finished, <laughs> I'll send you in a text, of course. Text me and I'll see if I can find it on Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, there was a whole world in New York, you know, at that time, 50s and 60s and stuff. So I think as far as a place to be in the world and to be starting to like, you know, have an emerging queer identity that was maybe a little bit public. I mean, that would have been a pretty incredible place to be stepping out into the world. Exactly. The boys in the band sort of bridges that between the 50s and 60s. Those character developments of each, each you know, male character, that is pretty identifiable. Hmm. I mean, that's pretty accurate, hmm. you know, as to the kind of world we're speaking about yeah. today. Yeah. Ryan Murphy, you know, people that are listening now may be familiar with that play because um, Ryan Murphy, don't ask me, no, no apologies, Ryan, but I don't know why he decided to remake that other than to bring it to the attention of, you know, the the immediate um, culture, but yeah. the original has no peer. I know. Well, some, some of that stuff, I mean, it's better off left in its original state. I mean, there's other ideas out there to develop maybe than to try to tackle right. some of those ones that were so incredible the first time around. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to you spent a big chunk of time uh, in Paris. So Paris was another like big part of your life. Yeah, Paris was. Um, I had gone there in about 1969 Again, my mother, I had, you know, we, there was a war going on kind of called the Vietnam War. God bless the souls, the boys, that my peers that lost their life in that. Mm. But um, there was a, um, a draft mm. where anybody, uh, if you were of age, if you were 18 years old and, uh, and a cis or not gendered male, you were up for the draft and you had to go and report in mm. person. And um, I had already been qualified for F, which meant, you know, you were gay and they did not want you. Hmm. It was like not, not pre, pre don't ask, don't tell. It was yeah. more like, don't bother. Don't wow. even bother. <laughs> but, I, but I had to show up and I, I watched all these boys, you know, getting 
getting weighed and measured, and 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 there were still ways out of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to these guys, you know, you know, you can you can escape this. There's ways to to dodge this, you know, mm-hmm. without being a rebel. Anyway, um, I did dodge it, um, and my mother was still afraid. For some reason, I was going to get drafted, and she had had long time friends uh in france paris Hmm. and she decided that i should go to paris Hmm. and i was like sure and antonio uh and juan had already established themselves there and they had an apartment and donna was there in in london and i thought yeah i'll go to paris so in 1969 i got on a plane and i got to paris and i hooked up with antonio and juan and donna and I stayed there for uh, probably a year or two, and then Andy decided to make the film L'Amour and um, came to Paris to shoot the film. Hmm. So I had been back and forth to New York a little bit, but Paris was horrendous. Like, there was no nightlife at this point. It was a gray city. It was so con- uh, conservative and so hmm. behind the times. There was no nightlife, no, like black culture you know afro-american culture there was um there was african culture which i had never seen before which was interesting but all that music all that that verve all that you know fashion you know from the kids that i was used to hanging out with that i missed yeah terribly but but what happened was again i found myself in a timeline that exploded because soon after that, France started to embrace. Um, I think it was also a little bit because of that famous show, uh, the extraordinary fashion show at Versailles. The Battle of Versailles. About yes. Where the black models came and just took Paris by storm. Yeah. Black models had always found a uh, place in France uh, prior to. Uh, you know the 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 explosion of of Versailles, but um, you know it was always you know historically open to you know look at Josephine Baker. I was just going to say, um, I mean Josephine Brit Baker, Tom. yeah, there was a whole culture yeah, in the twenties and thirties, and amazing. You know, these girls started coming over. Antonio was there. We started to really form kind of a um, what can I say, like a like a posse. Yeah. Um, we met Carl Lagerfeld. I mean, things sort of all sort of started to explode at the same time. Incredible, yeah. What a what an like just an amazing time. And that the Battle of Versailles fashion show was actually talked about in in a previous podcast episode. I mean, uh, both Connie Fleming and both Connie Fleming and Tracy Norman talked about the significance of that in both like the fashion world and in Paris in general and just how much that was, you know, yeah, it was a real kind of turning point. So you stayed in Paris for five years in total, I think you told me before we chatted, right? Yeah. Yeah. I came back right around the time of Battle of Versailles. I, you know, I said before how I always wanted to be in the, in the spotlight. And um, (laughs) once we made L'Amour, people in France, they, they adored um, Andy Warhol, by the way. They adored him. The way they adored Woody Allen, still to this day, they adored Jerry Lewis. Listen, mm. Don't ask me why, but, but the French are very peculiar in the way that they embrace the American 
top celebrities, actors, and um, Andy was one of them. And when hmm. we made the movie prior to release, it got a lot of attention, a lot of press, and people thought that if we were associated with the movie, we were legitimate movie stars. <laughs> so I got signed to a model agency called Pauline, and I was like, yay, now I can be a model and be in the center of it all. Forget the makeup. I'll wow. Put the makeup on myself. So I, I started to get work um, as a male model, and um, and uh, I got a job actually for Pierre Cardin, and, and um, that's what brought me back. It was a big job on, a, on an ocean liner, and we traveled. Well, they flew us back, me and my friend Jay, they flew us back to New York, and then from New York we got on an ocean liner and went to South America. So that sort of, by that time I was like, gee, I, I'm kind of done in France. I really had sort of, I sort of had burned a lot of bridges too because we can, I can mention my addiction to drugs and alcohol, which mm -hmm. wasn't helping my, my reputation and career. It was creating a lot of problems. And I thought, oh, I'll just go back. I'll do a, a geographic and go back to New York. I, I love that you commented on Studio 54 as being a bookend. And I actually thought to myself, well, like, cap it off at Studio 54. Because I also really feel like Studio 54 is, is like, explored to death and talked about to death and stuff like that. So you mentioned that as being sort of a bookend to your real, you know, more heavy involvement in nightlife. The idea of Studio 54, I think it gets a lot more... The idea of Studio 54 certainly supersedes the reality. Yeah. As do many things that happened in the past, because we're always looking back on the past and saying, oh, the 70s were so fabulous. The, you know, the Studio 54 is so fabulous. I mean, it, it was what it was. Don't forget. Also, that was the beginning of the, the, the velvet rope. Yes. You know, where Andy referred to Studio 54 as a dictatorship at the door and a democracy on the floor. Hmm. I mean, there were people that literally killed them, you know, would commit suicide or attempt if they weren't permitted into Studio 54. You had to present yourself in a crowd and wait there like a fool hmm. to be picked out. And I think that was the beginning of that horrid sort of, like, discrimination about who was going to be cool and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. So just to get into the Studio 54, sort of you had to, you know, meet the dragons and, you know, fight your way, fight your way through. So the elation of just being inside and the, the false sense of, of, you know, being accepted, you know, gave you a certain kind of drunkenness before you even got in there. It's a big club. The idea of the suddenly... Now we can have, you know, the clubs of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people and the idea of the, of the mix, you know, where the slummers were there to see the low life and, you know, the, um, the idea that all cultures would, would mix in such a densely sort of populated nightclub. Well, and I, I think one of the reasons why maybe it's so analyzed to death, I mean, my goodness, the number of like movies and books and documentaries. I mean, there's an exhibition up even in Toronto right now about Studio 54. I mean, I just, I feel like, oh my gosh, it's, it's a bit talked out. 
want to say, like, strangely enough, this is still pre, you know, certainly pre-social media, Instagram, all of that. Yeah. In order to get photographs or, or footage of these places, you had to be a real photographer, like Roxanne Lowett or Bill Cunningham or Phyllis Treel. Like, there weren't people that wanted to haul cameras around and change totally. things. This is pre-digital. You know, you had to carry a camera, reload it shoot have a flash you know like people weren't willing to do that kind of thing yeah so the documentation is limited mm-hmm. and when they try to do that film the last film of studio 54 it's basically just a few minutes of footage mm-hmm. available that, that exists yeah that you see over and over again so to really create you know there's not a lot of of information to sort of recreate what was really happening. Yeah, I mean, you see the same pictures of the same parties. Yeah. But it's it's very limited. And I think one of the reasons why people are, people really, they just keep harping on it a little bit or they love to sort of talk about it, I guess, is that it was, it's, I think, referred to by a lot of people as one of the last big, really heated, truly hedonistic times in like nightlife, let's say, was pre, you know, pre-HIV AIDS pandemic it was Correct. you know pre-reagan era like you know the drugs were apparently incredible and just everything was completely free for all and then it just came crashing down within a few years right and even studio 54 itself didn't Correct. last that long like as a nightclub so maybe that's why people are really hung up on it i mean don't get me wrong yeah. i'm fascinated yeah. by it but i also just feel like whew, it's been really done to death a little bit but yeah, I think I think Jordan, you're putting it in, into perfect context that historically it's seen as the last sort of you know hedonistic example of culture before the 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 plague. Yeah. yeah, and you know it's funny because my timeline, I left New York in you probably weren't even born yet in 1977, right when Studio 54 was was opening. Huh. And I really left New York because I just felt that it had like, like what I was seeing, where I was living on uh, the lower, you know, unfortunately, because I looked at the YMCA. Actually. Wow. Uh, prior to that song YMCA, <laughs> I was living in the YMCA. And the the expression of sexuality and the permissiveness of what was happening then was extreme. I didn't have much of a moral compass, but I think my moral compass just sort of broke at that point. Like mm. I couldn't I couldn't take it anymore. And luckily I had a place to escape to and it probably I really dodged the bullet. Yeah. I left New York City and I left I left the 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 activity and the the behavior mm. behind. I kind of escaped. Well, thank goodness you did. And you're here and you're as like handsome as ever and doing all kinds of incredible (laughs) stuff. Oh my goodness. I mean, you've been so prolific. And so I just have, um, you know, we've, we've been following each other on Instagram and I know that you've maintained a real connection still with, with sort of New York counterculture and that you're friends with all kinds of incredible and amazing, cool people that are doing cool stuff in New York. And so even though you live in Connecticut, you're like, you're like a part of the, you know, the DNA 
of of nightlife culture and fashion culture in New York and stuff. I mean, I just think it's so cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, culturally, again, in the timeline through this COVID period, we find that we don't have to be in New York City. Like people don't have to go to an office to work. The Internet, the social media enables you to, to reconnect with with you know limitless places and, and time yeah so yeah um, so i feel fortunate i have to say that i survived it oh my god uh i you know i was able to to get sober and amazing uh, that changed my life and you know i have a, an archive i i also saved a lot of stuff cool so that um you know i i don't know i feel that um when I die, I know exactly who I'm going to leave it to. <laughs> it's going to be able to, be, you know, add that to their own archive and, you know, perpetuate history. History is so important to me. You yeah, know, me too. Some people would, would probably think that it's so, you know, you know, unimportant. My time and what I witnessed, I feel, it's, you know, it still can be important and it because because of, people like you and the people that listen to you mm. that give us that audience to to keep it alive it's wow. wonderful what you're doing i love it oh my gosh i feel so lucky and i feel the same way i guess i'm you know i'm i'm i've always been really fascinated by queer history because i think when i was you know first like coming of age and stuff it's like you just you really had like no examples i mean you talk about having no information when you were first in your you know teens and stuff like that i mean we it really wasn't necessarily like i mean it was better in some respects because you had books in the library and stuff a little bit but it was still really pre pre social media pre you know all that stuff and um and i really sought it out i was really so keen on it um and and some of the people that i've even been able to interview since doing this podcast were people that i knew about because let's say i knew about their stories i knew that they'd been involved in history and i just wanted to like hear about it and share with other people and so you know i i think it was i think it was until about 1973 that gay people homosexuality was considered a mental illness yeah um so (laughs) i don't know there's probably people listening that might have been born might have been an infant maybe in 1973 i don't know but you know remember that this is considered we were outliers and considered insane yeah you know keep it going keep the history going keep it current from those that remember yeah so they can pass on because i think queer history is narrative it really is passed on absolutely orally from generation to generation yeah so absolutely yeah it's very important it's very important that we as queer people continue to do that yeah absolutely thank you so much oh my gosh this has been such a pleasure such a treat Thank you so much for this. Yeah, oh anyone, my gosh! Feel thank free you. To DM me if you have questions. Let's perpetuate our our gay culture. I Keep love it. Moving. I love it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Corey as much as I did. He remains really connected to this day and continues to share generously on social media about his life and the eras in fashion history we talked about in this episode. So definitely check out his Instagram, which is linked in the notes. A quick update as of this recording, February 2021, our center in Montreal's Mile X neighborhood has reopened for Saturday Open House. Check out any of our social channels for more information at NeverApartMTL or our website, NeverApart.com, for information on current exhibitions and our COVID safety protocols. 
Be sure to leave a comment or a review on whichever platform you're listening through, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And you can find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive.